This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rusland, today we have the returns of. He is, um, oh, Matt Armitage, you're so many things. Tell us, what, what is it that you, you are? Just say I'm a strategic consultant. Leave it as mysterious as that. But, I mean, you know, you're a real futurist as well, uh, I, I think. Um, and, uh, and also we have the return of, after a really long time, far too long, he is with the band Couple and also the band Playburst, so musician, mm-hmm. Ido Rusli. Hi. Yes. <laughs> Great to have you back. I think I also that uh, I'm a film fan, a film geek, so that's it. Lah. Okay, film. I asked him before how to describe him, and, he, and so now it's beginning to kind of seep out, yes. a film fan. So <laughs> our three topics this week is, uh, topic number one is, are uh, mobile phones destroying your memory? Digital amnesia. Topic number two is the 4-4 beat and why we need to ban drum machines or click tracks. And finally, topic number three is um, ideal. How would you describe topic number three? The battle between money and art in making Malaysian films, I guess. Okay. The eternal battle of yeah. money and art in movie making. Uh, Matt, digital amnesia. Yeah, so th- this is a, a story I read, I think it was in the, the Guardian, called Is Your Smartphone Ruining Your Memory? Uh, it's by Rebecca Seal, and it was about the kind of impact of digital devices and our use on them. Uh, I think the starting point she had was a study saying that, uh, you know, people felt that their memories weren't as good after the uh, after the pandemic, and of course, those those you know, issues of isolation and being cooped up at home, they all have um, effects on our our mental health. But they were also looking at the kind of increasing use of digital devices during that time to see whether uh, or not uh, the devices were having a kind of um, deleterious effect on our memory and on our behavior. And it's kind of interesting because there's no real consensus at the moment over whether the use of digital devices is positive or negative. And I think we've all felt a lot of um, both the the positive and the the negative feelings. I mean, there are neuroscientists who believe that uh, if our attention is being taken by the devices, then obviously we're not concentrating on anything else around us. So that means the memories of those things that are going on around us are simply not being written down into into our brains because there's there's no input there but by the same token there are uh, neuroscientists who believe uh, that we're just offloading tasks that we would have offloaded in the past in a different format you know one of the things i do when i go and park uh, somewhere in a mall is i take a photo of where i've parked and i think a lot of people do that and before i had a smartphone to do that I would often walk around a car park for absolutely ages because I'd forgotten what floor I was on. I'd forgotten what zone I was in. So it's the little things like that that we use the devices for. And maybe we do over rely on them, like, you know, putting all of our appointments into digital calendars. And then if we don't get an alert, we forget about those meetings. But would we have remembered those meetings anyway? We would typically write them down in a you know, in a, in a paper journal or, you know, calendar before the use of uh, smart devices. And if you didn't look at that, would you remember your 
your device. So I guess I want to ask you guys as well, do you feel any sense of these devices kind of not robbing your memories, but, you know, having an effect and maybe you're not actually writing down the information that you would have been sort of 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah. Rusli, are you, are you um, more forgetful and, uh, and even stupider now <laughs> because of smartphones than you once were? I think it's, it's just made us lazier, I guess. Uh, like the example Matt gave, uh, when, we go, when we go park in a mall, we just take a photo of where we park instead of remembering where the exact, you know, the M number something the, that we used to do before. Even during, even uh, when we research something, right? We we just uh, it's just easier to Google when we are uh, instead of trying to remember. So we are it's less of an exercise for the muscle in our brains, I guess, or memory muscle, whatever. So I guess it does have an effect, not really making us forgetful, but it's just making us uh, use the our brains less. <laughs> yeah. Bear in mind, though, the three of us are roughly about the same age. Mm -hmm. We we grew into the digital age. We were not born into mm -hmm. it. Yes. So we have a, a time before when we yeah. had to write things down, yeah. which occasionally I have to do now. And I think, God, this is so tedious. What the hell am I doing? Um, and also we're getting older. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you get older and you don't remember things. Yeah, yeah. We could blame it on MCO and phones, but... Maybe we're just getting older, Matt. Well, I, I think that's that's part of it. But I think for me, the the one that has the most impact on me, I think in a negative sense, is probably GPS. Um, because when we go out now, we just put ways on. Yeah. Uh, we don't really think about where we're going to go. I mean, when I used to live in London um, and I was going to a place I hadn't gone before, you know, I'd research my route in the A to Z because, you know, if you lived in London, you never look at the A to Z on the street because that immediately tells people you're a tourist and you're going to get robbed and mugged and all of those things. So you research a route and I generally get from A to B. And now, of course, I don't give it a second thought. I don't give a thought to where I'm going. I just get in the car, put ways on. And if there are instances where, you know, there, there's an issue with the signal or um, it's lagging or you know, the, the mobile provider has blocked my account because my unbilled usage has gone over my credit limit, um, which happens quite frequently, then, you know, suddenly I can't get access to the information and I don't really know where I'm going. And you, you kind of feel marooned at that point because you don't have any non-digital tools. Um, I mean, try try buying a, an atlas or a roadmap now it's very very difficult you know you you go into a, a petrol station to find like a a, a paper route finder uh, and they might have something on a dusty shelf that's been there for like 10 or 15 years but there's it's very hard to actually negotiate your way around the world now without using a digital device yeah but i mean did any of us really have any spatial understanding of what kuala lumpur was before is before i mean i don't like, do you know the relationship between Ampang and Subang? Apart from John Ampang, Federal Highway. Uh, but <laughs> I, I don't really know how they fit with each other. I used to live in Ampang, so I knew how to get to places from there. But if I had to connect Subang to Chowkit, that just my world falls apart because we don't we have no spatial awareness of what KL looks like. No, I, and I'll I'll agree with that as well. Especially, um, I mean, you know, as a foreigner coming to 
uh, Malaysia, the the idea that everything's built on ring roads and that your route to a place is not the same as your route back from a place um, was just, you know, is is still utterly confusing to this day. And one of the, the things about the the MCO, I think, and being stuck in Putrajaya for the best part of uh, two years is that coming back into KL now, I genuinely don't know a lot of the roads because they've opened a lot of... Uh, it's opened and closed a lot of roads as well because of yeah. the LRT. Yeah. And then renamed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's one of the nicer things about um, uh, about Malaysia. I think you, you know, in the UK, everyone gives you road names to navigate. Um, here, you're given landmarks, so nobody really knows the names yeah. of most of yeah. the roads. Yeah. You just like follow the the landmarks. But on the the new roads, of course, there are no landmarks. Well, okay, so let's not get distracted. Too yeah, much do, by the, deviate. Yeah, by that, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I my memory's pretty terrible and i think that I've, I've suffered from the digital thing cut and paste is is terrible it's terrible i won't remember a thing but ideal i mean do you are you a better person because of uh digital technology do you wish back to a simpler time uh well it has its pluses i mean as a musician and a songwriter i am thankful that i have a mobile phone that can record voice notes now so i i'll never forget a song <laughs> or a melody like I always did before. I mean, before this, I'll write it down, the, the lyrics or, you know, everything. But then I still, maybe uh, the next morning when I wake up, then I realize, oh no, the words are there, but I don't know what the melody is. So mm. I guess it helps in certain ways, but it's oh, it also, like I said before, uh, it makes us a bit lazy and we depend too much on it as well in certain aspects. Mm. Mm. So Matt, you are you gonna go? Are you gonna throw away your mobile phone and no, say, absolutely, no, and make fire with sticks and stuff like that? I genuinely feel that my devices make me smarter. I mean, during the the, the pandemic, I had to figure out how to do basic maintenance on my air conditioners because we couldn't get anyone in to to service them. So oh YouTube and Google, um, and yeah. um, it's teaching me guitar. Um, I've Learned. I mean, I, I did guitar lessons for a while, but I've learned a lot more from watching stuff on YouTube. It's also teaching me about pedal boards and signal chains. I genuinely think that, you know, it's making me a smarter, um, better person. And I don't know. I, I think we're in this stage at the moment where the technology is new. We don't really have rules for it. And that's one of the reasons we're getting lost. We haven't reached that point where... Uh, it's been normalized into our social behavior. So our social behaviors are still lagging behind our use of the devices. So I think that's the part that has to catch up. Yeah. I suspect we're going to be re revisiting variations of this quite a bit until <laughs> until the day we die. Um, uh, we're going to move on, though, to um, topic number two, uh, whereby a bit of culture is finally going to flex its uh, its enormous clout. It's... it's uh, uh, we have the ability to change things and we're going to change it by demanding that the world get rid of uh, drum machines and click tracks. Uh, now, Idol, you're a musician and, uh, well, Matt, you're learning guitar. Plus, also, you've listened to more EDM than I, I would ever know how to. Not for pleasure. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to ask about the beat mm -hmm. and 4-4 uh, time. Mm -hmm. So 4-4 time, 
the chances are 90% of the popular music you've ever listened to is in 4-4 four, four time. Yeah. And the first four is essentially the beat. The second four, I don't really understand, but we'll just concentrate on the first four. And there are, there are theories as to why, certainly in Western popular music, we, we go to 4-4 four, four time. In Indian music, for instance, the, the four, the beat, the four, does certainly exist. It's very important. But they also can have counting numbers that go up to 105, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> and imagine you know, losing count halfway through. Oh, I'm going to start all over again. But with uh, the four, there, there are certain possibilities. One is that it, it mimics an, uh, the, the heartbeat. Mm. Boom, 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 boom. And the other is that we are, as humans, we are bipedal. We walk on two legs. And as you walk, you can create a rhythm. And but also we um, each and every one of us favor the right or the left. And so as you step down, I'm right handed. As you step down on the right, that's going to be your emphatic beat. And the, the second could be passive. And then the brain of the, the, the listener will, could, when they hear this beat, will expect the beat to go there. But the drummer can put the beat just before. And then with that, you get syncopation. Now, um, drum kits are expensive and noisy. And so perhaps we're losing the drummer. Uh, our, our overlord producer here at A Bit of Culture, uh, producer Ali, he's a drummer. Uh, so, but the drum machine, and ideal, I'm sure that you use click tracks and drum machines because it's just, it's just so much easier. But um, then the beat is just too definite. And our heartbeats are imperfect. So we lose imperfection and we get seemingly perfection. We can also be completely in tune. Um, and I think, I think we lose the humanity of music yeah. and yeah. the interest. So ideal as a musician, uh, we were just talking about digital devices. Are you very analog or do you use uh, click tracks? Uh, well, for a couple, our first three studio albums, we never used any click tracks. It's all just by heart. But our upcoming album, because we we are starting to be a bit more digital. So there's you know, click tracks, there's drum programming, just to you know spice things up a bit. But personally, I, I'm still very much an analog guy. <laughs> hmm. uh, the human element, I guess, is very important in music. It, because why? Is, I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's the imperfection. But yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how would you describe it? Uh, I mean, your character comes from that. Even as a human being, your loved one will usually remember your imperfections. That's what makes you endearing to them, right? Yeah, well, tell yeah. my wife that, yeah. <laughs> please. <laughs> so in music, I guess, it's, uh, it's that, that imperfection, that human element. That, I guess that's why punk rock became such a big phenomenon, because it empowers uh, people to just you know just do it if you can't really play that well just do it because what matters is what uh, what you produce it doesn't have to be perfect but if it counts it, uh, if it's important to someone someone else who listens to it that's more than enough huh? I guess. Okay. Matt are you uh, I mean you're a friend of the machine well I'm a friend of the machine but I, I, I just want to ask um, Idil as well I mean does a click track mean that there aren't any imperfections well in recording during recording the click track is used to basically uh, to 
rub out any imperfections in the drumming. Uh. So it has it has to hit the beat perfectly. So when it doesn't, then uh, usually during the mixing we will uh, trigger trigger some of the imperfections so that it will equate lah. So I guess in a way it is uh, trying to achieve perfection lah using when you're using click tracks and to make things easier during mixing as well. So you can cut and paste the sections uh, easily. Yeah. Okay, mm. and and I guess then the the follow up question. So that would be as the the kind of songwriter, mm -hmm. do you want a drummer who's perfect or imperfect? Uh, I want a drummer who, how would you say, if it's too perfect, it's a bit bland, right? Because uh, as a drummer, you you have to toe the line between being uh, safe and being adventurous. That's what I think is uh, important, lah. So if it's uh, some drummers are so good. Uh, even with the click track, they can be truly adventurous, but not many people can play along to the click track while being adventurous at the same time. Most of the time, they will, they will, they know they will make, they will make mistakes, so they limit themselves, you know, from trying, trying things during recording. Yeah, but but I don't. Uh, what happened to your drummer? I mean, when you when you put on the click track, what's he doing? I mean, is he out of the band? Did he did he ask for too much money? What what happened there? <laughs> no. Ah. Uh, uh, some songs we just use a uh, drum programming, but some uh, is a combination of drum programming and live drums. So right. uh, yeah, because right. the click track is essentially just a metronome. It's not something yeah, that you yeah. hear on the the record itself. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. just keeping time in the background. So it's just something that's over the headphones for the yeah. the musicians to for keep the them in time. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, still, I think a bit of culture might be thinking of banning couple. Uh, we'll <laughs> uh, we'll get back to you on that one, Ido. We'll have some EDM in the new album. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't judge being old-fashioned, are I? I mean, I mean, I I have dipped my toes into sort of like you know modern popular music, and I I find it it I I kind of like I can comprehend beat, but I I don't feel I don't feel syncopation. There's no swing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Am I imagining things? I don't. I mean, I think I think there's maybe a difference between recorded music and live music. Anyway, yeah. in the I think in in terms of recorded music, you always strive for that perfection and and a bit more of that rigidity. Whereas live performance can be a little bit more fluid because it's about being in the moment. Whereas on record, uh, usually there's a lot of at stake, so there aren't that many artists that are prepared to capture those imperfections. I think one of the the few producers who um sort of really searches for that is Steve Albini mm -hmm. um who pushes people to record live in as few takes as possible not to do a lot of overdubs so you know that but there aren't a lot of producers who will happily put out work under their name that doesn't sound absolutely perfect yeah uh, okay so I, I don't I always I started off by talking about 4/4 beat and and it's it's very much western popular music it's kind of it's this strange combination of west african beats and european mm -hmm. coming coming together in in america especially say mississippi valley but here you are over here in malaysia you're you're a malaysian you're a malay fella and mm -hmm. do you find yourself playing this 4/4 time or do you have a do you feel that there's a different tempo inside you mm. I mean, uh, for couple, we are what we play is uh, power pop, which is basically a uh, very catchy form of rock and roll. So the four four beat is is the life and blood of the genre, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but when we try to incorporate 
something uh, maybe a more more localized element into it. Sometimes the swing is more you know, that the it's not strictly for four bit like uh, we have a song called Mencari Malaysia, which is uh, not really a, a merdeka song, I guess. But if you listen to the lyrics, I get, uh, it's not your typical merdeka song. <laughs> uh, that one I I was trying to incorporate uh, a bit of uh, Dike Barat in it. So yeah. uh, I didn't I look into it, but I mean Dike Barat, I don't really know what is the kind of meter, the, the time signature for that. It's not four four, is it? I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd like to know. Yeah, uh, I I also don't know because because I'm not a I I I'm not trained like a professional trained in music, so I can't even I don't even know the names of the chords. I just play them. I just uh, do everything by by ear. Yeah. But, yeah, like so. the Beatles. So, uh, <laughs> but but nonetheless, I'm going to listen to your new album, and I'll get back to you okay. on whether or not it can be released. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think it's fair. You know, it's only fair. Yeah, it's, it's generous. Fair. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but in a moment, uh, Ideal will will have his say, not actually on music, but on films, uh, here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Matt Armitage, and Ideal Rusli. And now, Ideal, uh, the, the eternal question, the battle of uh, art versus money in cinema, in Malaysian cinema. Yeah. I thought of this topic because of Matilau. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, and I think it will become the biggest ever film in Malaysia, overtaking uh, Avengers Endgame. Because I think last week it's already 81 million ringgit. So it's just like six more million ringgit to, to overtake Avengers Endgame. So it's incredible. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, and from that, because everyone's seen it. So there's a lot of discourse surrounding it. So the more film literate people will be complaining about, you know, how bad a movie it is. And the more populist people, you know, who just want to see a movie for entertainment, will just say, it's great, right? That's from the audience perspective. And then from the filmmakers perspective as well, they're, they're just saying, yeah, look at the money we got. So it shows that we are doing something right. So in a way, they're right as well. But there are also the camps of people who've been into a lot of uh, more prestigious festivals who, whose films don't really make money, but are representing us to right. So I guess, like you said, it's the eternal battle, uh, trying to figure out uh, which camp do we concentrate more on. But which, which one do you favor? For me, uh, because I'm a fan of genre films, uh, I think there's a way to bridge uh, the two lah. because you can make a popular film that's well crafted that can reach uh, international audiences for little money as well. Uh, so I yeah. get for me if uh, if a filmmaker wants to go international, the easiest way is to make a good genre genre film for me lah. Can you just explain what a genre film is to? Uh, a genre is uh, as defined by festivals like Fantasia, uh, all those. Horror, thriller, fantastic. Yeah, so you, you, so your movie fits a definite genre. Yeah, even yeah. if it's just a, a western, <laughs> you know. Uh, not, not, not really. Uh, westerns, rom coms, even though they are a genre, the they are not really considered as a genre film when it comes to speaking about this genre film. Uh. Oh. So it's more horror, thriller, fantastic movies. Uh. 
and sci-fi yeah. with it. Yeah. Matt, Matt, do you have any? Uh, have you? Did you enjoy Matt Kilo? I, I have not watched Matt Kilo. Yeah, nor have um, I actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, what, there's always these issues of you know art versus commerce in movies in in whatever country. Um, but I, I wonder as well what makes, for example, there's been a, a, a lot of exposure for Iranian cinema over the last sort of. 10 years. Yeah. So what makes um, external audiences look towards a particular country? Why are they looking, for example, towards Iran and, and maybe not towards Malaysia? Or why has the, the Thai industry um, got such a sort of a, a boost over the last few years internationally, but um, audiences aren't looking at Malaysian films in the same way? I, I, well, I, I do think that the, the festival circuit film is... Uh... It, in order to appeal to a foreign audience, it has to it has to register with cliches that that the foreign audience already have in themselves. Yeah, uh, and so it's reaffirming or just pushing a little bit further the, the cliche they believe to be true. And but if it's something completely new and strange, like you know, zo- I don't know, zombie film, zombie film in Malaysia, it's like, well, ha- this this does not adhere to any cliche I understand, and so therefore it's of no interest. And then you make a festival film for the festival audience. Yeah, so I, I guess that's the point, isn't it? Who are, who are the filmmakers making the, the films for? Are they making them for the Malaysian audience or are they making them for the international audience? They need to decide which audience they, they, want, to, uh, they want to make the films for. If they want to appeal to Malaysian audiences, then they will have to make films that local people want to see. Well, local, I mean, local audiences in Malaysia is, is difficult to nail down. I mean, uh, there's language already. Yeah. Um, you've already split your audience there. Yeah. You're, you're split in half. But I'm, I'm amazed that Mark Gilao, which is appealing exclusively, I should imagine, to a Malay yeah, yeah. <laughs> crowd, has done so incredibly well. That must also include people who are watching it again. That, that when, that's when you really make the money, like Titanic, you know, made it money because people watched it three, four times. And also, what I noticed uh, with Mat Kilau is even people who won't, who don't usually go to the cinemas will go. Like you know, yeah. grandmas and granddads who will ask their their kids to bring them to the cinema to see it. Right. So I get the subject matter because it's a historical movie. It's based on a historical character lah. But I've seen it. It's not a historical movie per se lah. It's an action movie, uh, an, an entertaining one like uh, like all those B movie uh, like. Those B movies from the eighties, like from Canon films, the Chuck Norris, the <laughs> yeah. it has that cheesy but very it uh it makes you emotional because it takes shortcuts, uh, a lot of easy shortcuts, but you know it's effective. So mm. I guess that's why it appeals uh, to people who just who are just casual moviegoers because you will be entertained uh, seeing it, right? And then uh, I guess the word of mouth lah. They yeah. are in their family, so everyone's coming to see it. How how well do you think it will do outside Malaysia? Not necessarily with Western audiences, but maybe sort of regionally. Regionally, I think it could do well in uh, because, I mean, the fights. Depending lah, I think in in Brunei it will do well because Malay films have always done well there. Singapore as well, maybe, but Indonesia, I'm not so sure because. Action-wise, the the action scenes in Mat Kilau is really not 
of the same standard as the raid or those kind of films are. So yeah, I mean, the, the raid is of a, a very high standard, but that's a martial arts yeah, yeah movie. Yeah, kind of pure and simple. Makila, not really. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, and there's that Thai, that that big that big Thai Ongba. blockbuster. Which one? Ongba. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's high quality filmmaking yeah. too. Yeah. But I think it's 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 worth looking at South Korea though. South Korea creates a lot of different types of movies, and and I don't think any of their movies have, you know, broken past the Avengers kind of scale. But I think a couple of years ago, the biggest second biggest movie had been about adoptions uh, in like the nineteen seventies when kids were being adopted and disappearing and stuff. Uh, that's not that's not a genre movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was it was it was heartbreaking, but it was also like a you know savage indictment of the Korean system. Mm-hmm. And it was it was hugely popular, if that's the word. But you know, in Malaysia, we've never really gone down that road. Yeah, that, that social issues. Yeah, a true historical kind of film, mm-hmm. as opposed to the fantasy of Mike Gila. Yeah, could that be? A, a way to go is this do you think there's money in that i think if it's a if it's a well-known case i think it might do well i mean just look at dukun because it's about mona fendi even after yeah. what 10 years when yeah. it released it, it took a, quite a bit of money like not like makilau but still i think it did it far exceeds the producer's uh hope i think yeah but I mean, look at how long that film and other films like spilt gravy have to sit on the yeah, on the shelf because of censorship yeah. issues. Uh, this is the problem for Malaysia. I don't, we can argue about genre, etc. But if the filmmakers not know they're not allowed to make like all that kind of story, a big, big bunch of stories, what's the point? Yeah, but I think uh, censorship is not actually a very valid reason because, like, uh, like you said, Matt, Iranian films. Their censorship is worse than ours, oh, okay. but yeah, but their films travel because because of the humanist angle <laughs> and uh, the stories they tell are universal, even though culturally it's specific, but everyone else can you know can relate to it. Like a separation, it's a story about divorce, but it's still like a thriller, and and I think it did really well everywhere. Even in France, I think it took. A few million admissions, not a few million euros. A few million admissions. So, yeah, but again, again, though that that in France would have been uh, a happy cliche for the French audience, like, oh, life in Iran is terrible. Look how hard it is to get divorced and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. not, not like us. Yeah, you know. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, at the end of the day, though, ideal. Are you confident that we could? What are you hoping for anyway? That we we make blockbusters for a global audience? Not blockbusters, but yes, uh, we make all sorts of pictures for a global audience. So but, we can. What about the local audience? I mean, isn't that like the priority number one? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, for a global audience that succeeds at home as well. Uh. But yeah. I I want to see you know our local hits be received well outside as well. Yeah, that's a holy grail. That one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hard one. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, one day. One day, yeah, for sure. Hopefully we're alive to see it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but for now, uh, we, we on A Bit of Culture, we're going to move on to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Matt Armitage goes first. 
I am going to recommend uh, a YouTube channel, actually. Um, Justin Hawkins Rides Again. Um, oh. Justin Hawkins uh, is, or um, a lot of people think was, but is the uh, lead singer of the band The Darkness. They had uh, a big hit in the early 2000s with, I believe, in A Thing Called Love. So it's hard rock, very much in the style of Queen. It's very uh, overblown and camp. And the the band kind of burned um, really, really quickly by the kind of second album, people were kind of losing interest. But his YouTube channel is really good fun. There's a lot of um, reaction videos, which I'm not massively a fan of. Um, but he is... He's very honest. He's very honest about um, his career, the band's career. He does a lot of sessions where he takes questions from um, people on the channel and he doesn't duck difficult questions. He talks about, um, you know, being famous and suddenly losing fame and all of these kind of aspects. Um, But he's also just a fantastic musician. So when he's doing his reaction videos, he can listen to a passage once and he picks up his guitar and he just plays the riff back and starts singing it so he's got this amazing insight about the way the the songs are constructed as well um so it's just it's just fun to sit there and watch him talking about the um the the science of putting songs together constructing songs uh making popular music but also being very unvarnished about his own experiences with fame and being very open and honest that a YouTube channel is now the way he earns a living. Mm. Oh, I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, I like his channel. I like, especially like his video about Turnstile. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Uh, you should see that because it's a hardcore band that's really blowing up right now. Yeah. Uh, so, so he deconstructs one of their songs. He plays the riff and everything. So that, that one was a fun episode. Because he's not a hardcore fan. Yeah. Uh, he's a more of a classic rock fan. So seeing him uh, talk about that is fun. Yeah, the same. I've seen him do a few like punk and indie ones as well, where he takes an outsider's perspective. And it's, yeah, it, it's it's really, enter- well, it's really informative. Yeah, See, yeah. it's digital devices making you smarter, like I said earlier. <laughs> I love that kind of thing. Okay, all right, I'm going to do it. Um, and I, I like Darkness, The Darkness, back in the day. Yeah, they're, they're still going and making records. Yeah. The first album is still the best for me. The first album, yeah. Yeah, because it's like uh, non-stop, wall-to-wall, back-to-back hits. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's, how do we, how do we uh, categorize them? They have a lot of glam ACDC riffs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, Fre- the Freddie Mercury on stage yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's the, the name of the, the channel again? Justin Hawkins Rides Again. Okay, I can check that out. I'll check that yeah. Out. Okay, so uh, my recommendation is also a YouTube channel, which oh. I'm going to guess, Matt, you might know of. Um, it's it's called, well, he is called, it's called Adam something. Um, oh, I don't know. Ah, well, you might find him interesting. He He's very funny, actually. And he uh, specializes in debunking and bad-mouthing um, the likes of Elon Musk and all these new sort of infrastructure ideas that come up that are going to change, change infrastructure forever. And, and basically he keeps coming back to what you've just invented is called the train, but you can't bring yourself to call it the train. Yeah. And, and he explains in, in detail, but very funny detail why it's just the, the best thing you need is just a train. And, and he sort of uh, debunks 
Dubai, for instance. Dubai as as some kind of uh, a city for the future. And I I find him very uh, interesting. Oh, here we are. These these devices are make uh, are entertaining and informing me, Matt. Oh my god! <laughs> See, I wouldn't get that from a book, would I? Never. No. Um, so I've I've been really enjoying him, and um, uh, his name is Adam something, and I think he's Hungarian. I'm pretty sure he is, but he's very funny. He's very funny indeed. Uh, oh. So yeah. So that's my recommendation. Check him out. But there's a there's a classic trope in in technology uh, about inventing the bus uh you know at least uh, half a dozen times a year venture capital firms are approached by people who've invented the bus yeah 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 but called it a pod called it a pod or called it a, a multi-person transport system or um but essentially yeah the bus <laughs> yeah and that's what he's he's talking about and 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 i, I just i mean just him sort of just just, just destroying elon musk's snake oil Salesman mm. pitch is is delightful. So, uh, Ida, what's your recommendation? Okay, uh, since I was talking about movies, I will recommend a movie as well. It's playing in Malaysian cinemas now. Uh, it's called Decision to Leave, a Korean movie uh, by Park Chan Wook, the director of Old Boy, uh, The Maiden. Yeah. So, an opportunity to see a movie by him on the big screen doesn't come along much over here so i guess uh, if you are interested if you're a fan of his movies you should see it the movie itself is kind of like a mishmash of hitchcock there's some rear window some vertigo so it's very romantic and it's very stylish i'm particularly a fan of the editing in it there's a lot of jump and match cuts that are like really awesome to witness uh, on, on the screen lah. so mm. I thought he got into trouble about something recently. Did he? Uh, well, maybe I'm mixing it up with another. I don't know. Yeah. Probably not him. Probably not him. But old boy, he hasn't made many films. I mean, yeah, old boy not, was. Not, yeah, not too, not too 20, many, yeah. 20 years ago or something. Yeah. Um, so what's the name of the movie again? Decision to leave. Decision to leave. Yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. I, mean, I love Korean films. They're just the best. But do you like Korean films, Idil? Yeah, yeah, I do. Are you like a Are you like a big fan of Korean films? I just follow the directors uh, like uh, Hong Sang-soo, Bong Joon-ho, Park Chan-wook. Uh, and lately, I, I think there's one guy making blockbusters, uh, pretty good, Ryu Seung-wan. What, what blockbusters were they? The, the last big hit he, he did was Escape from Mogadishu. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, okay, so uh, that's um, uh, Decision to Leave. Which is playing, as we speak, in Malaysia, probably in empty theatres next to the Makila, which is like packed standing room only. Yeah, empty theatres. Uh, <laughs> the one I saw <laughs> was empty, except uh, for a few older Korean folks there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, this week's show. By the way, uh, Ideal, before you go, have you got any gigs or any uh, albums coming up or anything you want to tell us about? Okay. Uh, we've got a gig in Johor Bahru on the 31st. Uh, July. July, yes. It's an event called Makan Fest. So there'll, there'll be a stage where bands perform as well. So, uh, and we've got an album coming up, hopefully by the end of September. And some singles before that. We're shooting a music video in a few days. So, uh, how, how do we get your album? Apart from going to love music or something? I don't know. Um, I guess just follow us on our Instagram, 
we are couple my on facebook we are couple uh okay. we will we'll update stuff there lah. all right i'll give it a listen and i'll see if you're going to get banned okay uh, <laughs> can't say fairer than that but i'll let you release it first yeah and thank you matt matt armitage thanks cam always a pleasure to be here yeah, yeah. and when are you going to be doing your first concert with your guitar learnt from the internet Never, but I am doing a few speaking performances next month. So oh, I'm doing awesome. a, a couple of uh, a couple of conferences next month, but I won't plug them too deeply here. Well, do you want to plug them at all? Uh, well, I'm do uh, I'm moderating a few sessions at the minted uh, NFT and crypto conference at the end of uh, August, and I will be doing something at uh, a music event in uh, early August as well. In JB Muckanfest. No, in uh, in KL. Well, oh, okay. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, thank you. And thank you, uh, Ido Rusli. And uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of Bitter Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.